Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am your host, Scott Challoner, and you join us on a transatlantic podcast today as I'm joined by CEO of Educated Change Limited, Peter Klein, who is currently sat in Chicago, I believe, isn't it, Peter? Uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minneapolis, actually. Minnesota, actually, yes. I'm probably just reading the uh, the time zone there, so that's uh, my fault uh, for sure. Do apologise uh, for that. Um, Educated Change Limited um, is a marketing and advertising company which helps executives with the attention economy as they balance technology, real-world pressures, content, and social media overload. Um, Peter, very, very warm welcome to you, and I have to say thank you ever so much for joining us. Pleasure. It's a real pleasure having you with us as well. And um, the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. Um, But considering that today's business leaders are going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected yourself and your operations at Educated Change. Um. From my personal perspective, it separated me from my family, um, who is uh, located in the States, and it made it really difficult to get back to see them because of the rising pandemic in the U.S. over time. And of course, we have operations around the world, one of which is in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And um, so between London and Minneapolis and our normal to say meetings and events that we hold, it it looked like it was going to stop us in our tracks. Now, we support people digitally, and we like to say that we help them with influence and insight from social networks. Influence being how do you help shape markets and get, get organizations, people, both internal and external, to to move in the right direction. And then insight is really what data is out there about people and companies that can help you sell your products and services um, in a more efficient manner. And what we discovered as we moved into COVID is that all of a sudden, everybody realized they have to be digital. So our business has tripled in size during COVID. And so it was really uh, difficult from a personal perspective. It was difficult on most of our employees as they no longer got to see and talk to each other other than digital, which I think most people had that problem. How do you think they coped from a mental health perspective, adapting to almost that leadership and working from a distance, doing everything remotely? Because the social isolation element of the lockdowns that have been happening worldwide has really thrust the importance of mental health and well-being back into the limelight, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And uh, we did a couple things that, uh, as we experimented through this, so we went through this phase of, wow, we're so productive because we're not in meetings and we're not being distracted. And then we moved into, yes, but I'm lonely. And so we hired a um, psychologist that was available to for any of our employees to talk to. And 
then the other thing we did is we started basically daily check-ins with um, with the individual teams, um, being the country teams, and then we moved that to um, having a couple of times a week to not just by country, but everybody together. And that brought back some sanity. And, um, you know, the whole thing was how do, how did we help each other become more empathetic and to realize that when people weren't doing their jobs, it really wasn't that they weren't capable. It's just, they were so distracted by personal issues that, that the mind that your mind creates, um, when it's, when it's put in a void that or the void that, um, COVID created. And what the COVID-19 pandemic has also done has made us really consider the future of digital, especially in the uh, the workplace. There's a great deal of talk, particularly in the UK, about whether the conventional office space, whether there's any need for it anymore, whether more and more people are going to be working from home on a more personal level. Um, do you think that some features of the lockdown period like that could become a permanent fixture of the way that business is done throughout the wider world? Um, I think it will. I think we'll see that we still have meetings, we still have offices, but they will be used differently and um, differently from the perspective that it's really where a close collaboration will take place. But the days of of you know conventions where you get thousands of people attending them, I I don't think we're going to see those anymore because. The ones that I've seen move from the physical world to the digital world, people like better because there's there's so much less wasted time. Your ability to network with the right people for the right reasons is much more focused. And um, I think we're going to see a carry over that because, um, like I said, the events we've been involved with all lead to I got more out of the meeting than when I had to lose a day flying there, a day flying back, and um, random meeting of people. Whereas in today's world, these events, we're starting to see that I can see who's attending, I can look them up, and I can say, oh, I want to connect with that person because they can help me, my company, or my personal life. And it's important to remember in leadership capacities that we are not alone and we can turn to others to help us. And that's exactly what Educated Change has been doing in this year, hasn't it? Helping executives of businesses adjust to the COVID-19 restart after lockdown. It is important that we get messages out there to business leaders that we're not lone wolves and we can look to others and learn from others to help us. Because ultimately, when we go through trying and testing times such as this, we are all in the same boat in a way, aren't we? Um, we are, and I think you're going to see the, the great leaders move to a service model versus what I would call the ego model. Ego being, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm winning, I'm playing the game, whereas the service is how do I take the people around me, whether they be my employees or my customers, and make their life better? How do I help them grow? How do I help um, as, as my partner and I, Kevin Bryant, who were 
I don't want to say older, but we're certainly older than a lot of the the executive coaches that we work with. And it's really about helping them serve. And once you shift to that service uh, that service model of leadership, everything becomes easier because you're helping these young people grow. And having considered what is to come slightly there, I think it serves that we take a little bit of a backward step and look at the past as well um, here uh, before we do wrap things up on the year programme, Peter. Um, Obviously, you've had a distinguished career in business going back many, many years, worked in both the United States and indeed in UK-based roles as well. Um, As you've developed through your career and got into the position that you are now, what would you say have been some of your biggest inspirations? Um, my inspirations are really how do you make work fun? How do you bring playfulness into the workplace? And whether it be uh, jobs that, that make no sense or where you're locked down in COVID today, is it's a mindset change. And Carol Dweek, I think, who coined that uh, phrase mindset. You know, it's really about when I look at this, do I see it as a as a difficult task, or do, can I see it as fun? And both of them are correct. But when you can when you can bring fun into it, then all of a sudden you want to go to work. It's not difficult. And so as I reflect back, and and again I worked in lived in Asia, uh, Europe, as well as the U.S. over over my career. And the best companies all seem to have a, have a great mindset. And it's just a way of looking at what you're doing with playfulness as well as the service side of things. And would you say that approaching it from that mentality has certainly um, sort of helped break down maybe some of the cultural barriers uh, within leadership as well? Because I suppose there are cultural differences in leadership culture throughout the uh, the wider world as well. There is, but at some point we're all children and we all play and then we kind of grow up and we think that goes away. But, you know, we if, if you want to smile or you want to get a group of people to smile, just bring playfulness into it. And all of a sudden, uh, when you think about playfulness or any game that we play, you know, it's the leadership of the teams that, that makes it work. And we see that on on the football field, um, the ones that really enjoy Mm. the game and not winning or losing, but they just purely enjoy the game. So uh, for me, it's, it's really been about that, that playfulness. And there's a fantastic book out um, called The Finite Infinite Game. And once you realize that things like soccer, it's a finite game. The people have agreed the rules. It plays for a certain amount of time. But the infinite game knows that I've got to get up again tomorrow and play this. And how do I bring my best self to it? And that's usually with the people that you want to be around are those that are full of life, full of play. 
it's fantastic how you describe it as being the infinite game there. It's um, a wonderful way of um, observing it. And thinking about um, those aspiring young leaders out there who may be looking to start their own businesses or step into leadership roles within established firms. If you, Peter, could give some advice to them to really get them on the road to success, what advice would that be? Everything you do, do it to build up others. Simple as that. And don't do it for yourself. Do it in the service of others as your, you know, how do I, how do I help my customer? And how do I bring joy or happiness into their lives? Um, so, again, once you put on the service mentality, you'll, you'll find that life's easy because doing things for others um, takes, takes our problems away because we're thinking about someone else. And I forget who said it, but the, the greatest line is if you have a problem and you tell somebody, you're giving it away. And then all of a sudden you've got everybody working to solve your problem. And that's, that's that service mentality. Um, so getting people to bring those forward. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed for anybody tuning into uh, the uh, the podcast today. And thinking now about the uh, the next 12 months, um, Peter, we do know that we are going to have to continue to adjust to what is billed as the new normal way of living and working. But over that period of time, what is next for you and for Educated Change and where can you really see the business in 12 months' time? Um, I like this, this, uh, line that I want to think positive and test negative. And I think as we move forward, uh, obviously we want to continue to test negative if we're taking the COVID test, but if the think positive, it is, it is when we lose our positiveness that this whole thing spirals downward, that, that. We stop when we think negative, we stop hiring people. And so it's about how do we be realistic yet think positive about growth, about opportunities, about the, where the universe is going to take us. And you need people around you that can, can, can continue to think positive. So go back to the game analogy. And, you know, when you see a, a team get down, they usually don't win. And so going forward is how do we, how do we see growth? How do we see, um, how do we shift fast enough? Because the markets and the products that everybody sells are going to change very rapidly here in the next 12 to 18 months because consumer demand is going to change. What we think we need is going to change. And I think our biggest uh, thought process has to be on how do we stay um, undistracted and, and focused and positive. I hope that answers your question. It certainly does, Peter, and I certainly hope that we see those plans coming to some real fruition over the uh, the course of the next few months. And it would be a real pleasure, in fact, for me to uh, welcome you back onto the programme at some point in the next year, just to see how things are coming along in that respect. 
Good. I'd, I'd love to. I, and um, our biggest challenge right now is is hiring more people. And, and of course, that shift where you never get to meet them only by online is, mm. is a big challenge, uh, especially for our younger people who are oftentimes first-time managers and they're having to do their interviews without, you know, shaking a hand without actually seeing the person. Mm. So it's going to develop a whole other, other levels of skills and what I'll call digital intuition. In other words, how do I, because a lot of hiring is intuition, and how do I feel that? What does digital body language look like um, over Zoom? Mm. And it's all those skills that we're, that we're going to have to learn. It certainly is an interesting time for business, isn't it? So I'm very, very intrigued to see how things uh, pan out over the uh, the course of the uh, the next uh, few months as we do adjust to this. And uh, Peter, as well, um, before we do touch base again, hopefully in future, most importantly, um, do continue to think positive, test negative, and stay safe with all still going on. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Peter. Thank you ever so much. Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be welcoming Peter's fellow CEO, Kevin Bryant, onto the programme. Uh, Kevin's responsibilities include overseeing educated changes handling of reputation management, communication, social networking, social media and change management. Kevin, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you join us as well. And um, speaking on the program just now, of course, your colleague uh, Peter Klein was speaking about how Educated Change has managed its way through the COVID-19 situation thus far. But in your case, would you say that there's anything in terms of your leadership capacity that you've learned from this experience of crisis management, if we call it that? Um, That's a great question. I mean, um... And this is such an unusual situation where it's not just any crisis. This is nothing in our lifetimes that we experienced um, like this. Uh, and um, I guess a lot is about learning a lot about myself and how I would react and uh, have reacted uh, in this, this sort of uh, situation. So there's a lot of self-learning. Um, resiliency has been a huge um, factor. Uh, I need need uh, really needed gobs of it uh, and flexibility agility all these sorts of things have come into great use um, over the last several months and, um, and and then of course learning a lot about other people uh, people on our team uh, everyone's weathered it in different ways some people had um, big trouble or more difficulty than others others seem to do well although I'm sure everyone, had their moments um, where it was uh, where it was tough times. So I think we benefited a lot from pulling together. We did a lot of um, had a lot of conversations uh, every day, every week. Tried to keep in touch with people. Uh, some people it was uh, it was perhaps more easy to see when they were having some difficulties, and so we we tried to um, you know do what we could to support those folks. Um, and I think, you know, at the bottom line was, at least from our perspective as leaders, is that we, you know, we care about our people like their family members. I mean, really, uh, a lot of these guys we grew up with over the last 10 years of this company's existence, 
Um, some are, are uh, been with a shorter time, but we quickly have this feeling of these are our, you know, these are members of our flock, and uh, we did not go to the uh, furloughing route. We did not fire anybody. We were determined to uh, keep everyone in their seats, so to speak. So um, I, I hope that was appreciated. I, I hope our efforts to keep things going as much as uh, we could and, you know, keep things as usual as they could, but also trying to keep room for, uh, you know, for people to give people a, a chance to express when they were having difficulty. Uh, hopefully that, that helped us a lot. Mm. And certainly Peter spoke an awful lot about the importance of mental health in leadership, both in terms of safeguarding your own and also that of the uh, the people around you. And what we've also seen during this crisis as well, Kevin, I think, is the value of hindsight as well. And we've seen so many business leaders and leaders within governments across the world as well um, have um, their actions scrutinised, people looking at what they've done and thinking, well, maybe this could have been done a little bit differently in managing the uh, the pandemic. Maybe this could have been done a little bit better and maybe this is something that they've done well. Um, but part and parcel of being in a leadership role, I think, is learning on the spot isn't it and accepting when you do get things wrong and then embracing those mistakes as a learning curve rather than engaging in a blame culture yeah i mean absolutely i mean i think you know looking at ourselves we were we were evolving uh as we went along as i say this has never happened anything like it's never happened before so we were um you know deers in the expression deers in the headlights uh, in the first few weeks, uh, we had uh, uh, lost a client or two, and we're wondering again what would we have to reduce force and all that sort of thing. But um, in the end, uh, it turned out to be—you uh, know—you hate to almost hate to say this, but it happened to be a big boon for our business because people, everyone's trying to get digital. We're in the digital business. Um, people are worried about their their LinkedIn profiles and all their other ways of accessing their clients and their the audiences that made the most sense. Um, and so we were able to, out of the, of the, the broken eggs, <laughs> we were able to make some, some serious omelets and the business is really, has really taken off. And I, you know, again, thank goodness we were able to keep people in their, in their jobs because we wouldn't have been able to support the business that's come on, mm. um, as a result. And, uh, it's still difficult. It's still a challenge because of, um, you know, people working at home are still adjusting to this remote work environment. But I think we're also finding that if you do it right, and, and again, we're trying to support and encourage the flexibility that really needs to go along with that sort of situation, um, it can actually be uh, a more productive, in many ways, a more productive kind of working situation. Um, at the same time that you, you, know, you must keep, you gotta, you gotta look after your, your health, your mental health, your physical health. You've gotta take breaks from, um, you know, from work, from the screens. You've gotta get up. You've gotta change things up a bit. Take time off when you need to. Uh, so we, we tried to, we tried to encourage that, but we're learning, as I say. I mean, it's, it's all new. So we keep, you've gotta keep adjusting and changing and, as you say, back to the blame culture, you can't uh, you can't look back. You've got to keep looking forward and keep uh, making adjustments as you go. 
Mm. And one thing that we've noticed over here in the UK during this uh, time of COVID-19 is um, there's been a real sense of national unity rallying behind the uh, the NHS with the uh, weekly clapping for the uh, the doctors and nurses on the front line. But suddenly, um, earlier on in this year, there was a huge event which caused fluctuations on both sides of the Atlantic with the killing of George Floyd, of course, and the anti-racism protests yeah. which came about as a result of that. That has not been yeah. getting as much traction in the news in more recent weeks but it just shows that this mm-hmm. is a time isn't it where we need leaders to bring people together for the common good of equality and that's especially true as well when there's a lot of political division not just in the UK at the moment over what the government's doing here but also over in the US with it being an election year as well Yeah it is again crazy time there's sort of three three pillars um, well you don't even want to call them pillars because the uh, not sure these hold up anything, but you've got the coronavirus, you've got the the economic disaster that has, uh, I mean, difficulty, let's say, not necessarily disaster, but I mean, it's hard not to say that, right? Um, and then you've got the um, the social unrest that has come out of uh, uh, the Floyd, George Floyd situation, and and other things, um, and, and other other things, events that have have come out of as a result of that uh, that specific situation. So in terms of our business and, and our staff, uh, we've never, um, you know, we talk freely about it. So uh, when we have our, our morning meetings, uh, often that's where we start. Um, some of these events unfold, uh, whether it's something that someone said in the state from the political uh you know, in the political uh, environment or someone in the state, someone in the UK. Um, we talk about it and uh, we try not to be judgmental. Certainly as leaders, we try to let the conversation flow in directions that it will. I think fortunately we've got uh, all of our people are very, um, very progressive minded, very uh, open to other points of view and, and respectful of each other, which ultimately has got to be the key, um, you know, when there are differences of opinion, but we try to allow that conversation to happen and, um, not, you know, not stay away from it, but uh, at the same time, come back to what are our core values, um, which is really about accepting everyone, all types, uh, all walks of life, and also trying to help our clients mm. to be, um, you know, communicating in the best way with the people who make uh, a difference in, in their lives. So it's, uh, yeah, we it's you, you've got to keep it up on the, you can't pretend it's not happening. You know, it would be a, it would be a great mistake to uh, pretend that uh, these things that are going on are, are not impacting our people's lives or our business. Exactly right. It's not something that you can just sort of bury your head in the sand over and ignore. It is something that you really have to sort of take on, sort of wake up, smell the coffee and face it head on for sure. And during a time such as this, um, we've seen um, the amount of pressure that's been put on leaders to try and provide some real direction and certainty in a time where there isn't a great deal of certainty and there's also a lot of worry. But when you are in a leadership position and people are looking to you for that guidance, when there isn't anybody above you to refer to as such, where is it that you look to for inspiration and direction when you need it for yourself? Well, I look very much to my family. Um, uh, who've been wonderful uh, through the years. Uh, and so I get a lot of sustenance 
from my wife and uh, my kids. I'm forever uh, I'm so proud of what they've built and created in their lives, uh, and they you know each has their own perspective on things that they uh, I just get enormous um, sustenance from from them. So uh, so that's number one. Uh, that that group of people, my family is is hugely uh, important in that regard. Uh, and then my partner um, uh, in business, uh, Pete Klein, is has been a wonderful business partner and friend. We were we were friends before uh, this company started, and we we've become closer friends, uh, which is not supposed to happen when you go into business with with a with a good friend. And um, he has been. Uh, a wonderful uh, support for me. And certainly as we've gone through these last several months, um, you know, we've had many, many conversations during, uh, you know, some dark hours when this uh, crisis first hit. And, um, you know, we got through it together. I can't imagine running a a business like this, uh, you know, without having him uh, sitting right, right next to me. So, uh, those uh, those folks have all been really important. And last, I would just mention that um, we have a group of of, of guys um, who've been meeting for many years. Uh, many of them, uh, a number of them, are now retired, but uh, a lot of them uh, were expats, lived and worked in the UK for many years. It's probably a group of uh, close to thirty people. We've been meeting for the last twenty years, or at least some of them in, in the group. And so we meet still. We have uh, we have a Zoom call every week. And um, again, one of the unintended consequences, but nice consequences of this COVID time, the COVID times, is that we've uh, the people who have moved away, we've been able to you know, bring back together on these Zoom calls. And so we have some rollicking conversations about all sorts of things. And it's been again another great support for uh, for. Um, you know, during these times. And of course, um, your career has taken you in so many different directions before joining the uh, the Educated Changer project, of course, Kevin. But if we think about now the future of that project, we know that we're going to have to adjust to this new normal way of living and working over the course of the next few months until hopefully we find a cure or a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus. But over the next year, what do you feel is next for Educated Change and where do you sort of see the business being yourself in 12 months' time? I'm sorry, where do I see the business? Where do you, would you see the business being in 12 months' time? In 12 months' time. Well, certainly bigger. Um, you know, we, I think one of the keys, there's a great book called, uh, I gather it's a great book called um, Only the Paranoid Survive or something to that effect. Business, kind of a classic business. Book. I never read it, frankly, because it sounded scary. But the title makes a lot of sense, <laughs> and I think uh, it's. Of course, you could become over, you can be over paranoid, but I think being that sort of having that sense of caution and awareness and alertness is really key in any business, right? So I say that because um, the economic situation is, uh, you know, is likely to get a bit worse before it gets better, and may get a lot worse before it gets better. So all of our thinking and planning all along the last month is uh, trying to prepare for what might be even darker days. 
um, and prepare in a way that will still allow us to thrive as a business. And I think we've taken a lot of the right steps, um, a lot of the right steps. And we, we are recognizing, as I said before, that, um, you know, and, and, and you know, <laughs> despite that, it's kind of funny that we would have had any doubts in the beginning. It just makes logical sense. If, if this is the new way of working, this COVID has forced the digital transformation that we've been talking about for years and years. I mean, business industries have been talking for years and years. It's, it's forced digital upon us. Uh, and so this so-called future of work, this new way of working, this focus on the digital, that's uh, here to stay. I mean, we may mix it up a bit more. We may, uh, you know, some of us will go someday back into an office, but I suspect it won't be to the same extent that we did before COVID. So, um, so with all that, all that in mind, um, our business is uh, it's ultimately about bringing insights to our clients, helping our clients develop the kind of influence that they're going to need to be successful with their uh, audience, with their clients. And the only way to do that in the digital world is by growing your digital presence, improving your, deepening your digital presence, all those sorts of things that are right down our, right down our street. So, um, and, and the proof is in the, in the pudding. So as I say, the last uh, couple of months, business has been crazy uh, for us. Uh, and uh, we're, we're growing well into the double digits uh, in terms of the top line this year. And I, I suspect that that will carry forward. So the plan for us will be, even in the face of a downturn, there will be, we think, even more urgency about people's digital, people's and companies' digital presence. Uh, and so we're trying to prepare hiring. We just hired a bunch of people. Uh, I suspect we'll have to hire a bunch more. So the, the, the trick for us will be staying on the board. The challenge will be staying on the board. As the business grows briskly, as we hire more people, you know, maintaining control, while we grow, maintaining the culture, which has really been, we think, very special, uh, that family sense, the family orientation. Um, as you get bigger and bigger, that becomes more and more challenging. So that's going to be the, the hard work, but the fun work, I think, right? As long as, uh, while we're growing, keeping things uh, going in the direction that's going to foster still a great place to work mm. um, and the kind of development that we hope to continue to see in our all of our people that's going to be the that's going to be the great fun and challenge and i certainly wish yourself peter and everybody at educator change all the luck in the world in those endeavors and i think it would be wonderful to welcome the both of you back onto this program hopefully at some point in the next year just to see how those plans are really coming to fruition would love to do it thank you scott It'd be a fantastic opportunity as well, Kevin. I've been really, really enjoyed having you uh, with us today, um, as well as Peter as well. It's been a pleasure listening to the both of you share your views. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, do take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well. Thanks so much. And you as well. Take care of yourself. 
I was speaking there on the programme to Kevin Bryant, Peter Klein's CEO colleague. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. 
Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, 
the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the 
essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or 
for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now 
about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well 
uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge 
is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.